So, Rebecca, I got some juicy emails for us to read and respond to. What do you say? I'm, I'm all in. So, anonymous patron, she writes in and says, I recently had a fairly disturbing encounter with a man who claimed to have a PhD in clinical psychology and worked with vulnerable people at a meditation center. Mm-hmm. He started talking to my friend and I while we were meditating in a fairly public area on a bit of grassland. He asked us if we were meditating, which took us out of our peaceful state quite abruptly and rudely. We started talking as we both work in the field of mental health. He mentioned that his method of helping people get better is to make them feel the worst they can possibly feel and just sit with that feeling so they can learn how to tolerate them and break the cycle of avoiding emotions. I mentioned that I have uh, quite a lot of experience working with people with trauma and that this method can sometimes traumatize them. Throughout the whole conversation with him, he was very dismissive of any mention of kindness or compassion in the therapeutic process, saying that this is just going to reinforce bad behaviors in clients. We then ended the conversation as soon as possible as he asked to have a threesome with us. (laughs) We got out of there very quickly. We both felt quite shaken after the encounter and almost felt as though we had come across someone quite evil. He seemed to relish in making his clients feel pain and obviously enjoyed our discomfort. Is this kind of treatment effective in helping people overcome their mental health issues by making people feel negative emotions? I am also quite worried for the people under his treatment. Since he works at a meditation center, does this mean he hasn't been able to work in a more certified mental health treatment setting due to malpractice? Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, Probably. Um, So I just did a two-day Zoom training led by Bessel van der Kolk, probably the most famous trauma treatment person out there. And he addressed this style a lot, this confrontational style, and reminded people over and over again that the most effective therapy is when there is a safe relationship between the client and the therapist, especially when trauma is involved that this kind of positive regard and kindness increases people's ability to heal over a long period of time. Um, And then there was another piece I was trying to remember. Also this idea that like we have to sit with things that are difficult. Um, Bessel was talking a lot about how actually the point of therapy and trauma is to create new neural pathways that are based on joy and connection and support with others. It's not about actually sitting with the negative for long periods of time. That can be helpful for short periods of time. But really what therapy is about is about moving forward and being able to live and joy in the moment. Um, So my guess is that you are correct. This guy is working at a facility where he's not using his license because no one wants the type of therapy that he's offering and the fact that he would go around interrupting people's restful moments to a talk about himself and b ask for sex tells me even more about this guy yeah so you've heard of this and Bessel was also saying that there are people who in our field believe this paradigm that if you're going to heal, you have to, quote unquote, sit long term with your negative emotions. This is a, a sliver or a percentage of our field and has been present for a long time, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So do you have colleagues that are like that? Because I can't think of anyone in my circle that would ascribe to that idea. Well, when I worked in New York, that 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 upper echelon of psychiatrists were definitely in this realm. And I remember someone came in to do a presentation on dialectical behavior therapy and why it was effective. And some of the older clinicians, all white men, got up and walked out and were like, this is bullshit. You know, people need to learn how to behave. Right. Yeah. That's what is kind of in this uh, account that uh, an honest patron is giving us that that I've heard from people before is, you know, there was a thing here that said um, to have compassion and kindness, you're just reinforcing bad behaviors in clients. And it's, you know, an extremely patriarchal uh, Northwestern European idea of independence and lack of emotion and uh, compassion is babying people. Uh, being nice is to be weak and to be strong and to overcome the mountain is to be a good human being and a healthy human being and count countless evidence in the to the contrary especially in trauma therapy i mean it's akin to the the joke of therapists just grabbing their clients by the shoulders and shaking them and saying mm -hmm. knock it off and that's ridiculous that's a ridiculous counter evidence notion um and highly patriarchal and sexist and probably racist in some right. ways. It's so white, right? Yeah. The idea that if you just worked harder at stuffing down your desire for joy and were able to sit with your toxicity longer, you would be better. Yeah. Like, and it, I mean, who does that make? I mean, that's like Voldemort. Like, who does that make you think of? Who, right. I would not want to spend any time with that person. I know. I wish people did that more where, like in the political discourse, mm -hmm. I wish people just said, who else in history or in movies and TV exhibits this kind of paradigm? If I am more like Voldemort and less like Harry, if I'm more like Hitler and less like... I don't know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then something might be wrong with my perspective. So the example from this week is uh, Ted Cruz got very mad at Big Bird right. for um, telling... Right. If I'm more like Ted Cruz right. and less like Big Bird... <laughs> so then... I, I had to watch the source material for myself to see what Big Bird was... Oh. Have you seen it? No, I didn't, but you tell me. You will sob like a baby. It is too doctors or clinical psychologists talking Big Bird through mindfulness of how to sit with his anxiety of when he gets the shot, how to bring his stuffy, his grandma, grandma, granny bird goes and gets the stuffy, brings it to Big Bird, Big Bird practices his healthy breath, they talk about his big feelings, and then he decides he's okay getting vaccinated. And I mean, what's the problem with that? Ted Cruz called that propaganda. About what? About um, forcing people to get the vaccine. When actually it was like the most touching piece of play therapy I've seen on TV. Well, let's ever. say it is, uh, uh, you know, another word for propaganda is influential. If it's influencing people to do something that will literally save more lives than not, then fine. <laughs> it's like trying to influence people that global warming and climate change is a thing or wearing your seatbelt is helpful or, you know, using 
lots of drugs is not a great thing. Uh, yeah, if you call that propaganda, fine. Um, well, and also, what has Ted Cruz ever done to lower the anxiety of children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so we can come up with lots of examples of white men and Cruz's, I don't is he Hispanic? Hispanic? Um, when men, <laughs> it's not like Hispanic men, according to Umberto, are not toxic in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, so it's, uh, yeah, it's problematic. Now, having said that, can it be helpful uh, in therapy to help people tolerate, quote unquote, negative emotions? Yeah, sure. Um, as a general rule, you know, maybe not, but helping people to say, you know, it's okay that you're suffering. That's just how it is, you know, to fight it. Or it's okay to be upset and angry and maybe even a little rageful. You know, you can allow your, your world isn't going to fall apart. It's okay to cry. It's okay to, you know, a, a lot of times uh, I'll, with a lot of clients, they'll say to me, you know, I, they'll be holding back the tears and I'll say, why are you holding back? And they'll say, well, I, if I let it out, if I just let go of control, everything's going to fall apart. And mm -hmm. I say, no, it won't, especially here with me. I have, I got you. And I'll tell you if things are going off the rails and I've never had a situation where someone cried and let go of that control and, and something bad happened. You know, it's always something good. There's a patriarchal notion that things are going to be bad and maybe a a family of origin notion that they were taught that they need to not cry. But, um, but anyway, so, you know, being able to sit with your emotions. So the, there's a little bit of truth to it, but it sounds like, you know, to have the dogma of no compassion and no kindness. And that's the other thing they're not exclusive, right? You can uh, be with people while they're experiencing quote unquote negative emotions and also have tremendous compassion and kindness. You know, Fritz Perls was kind of like this, right, where he would uh, put people in positions where they would feel very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. he, he kept he would say, what are you doing with your hand there? You know, it's, oh, I don't know. I'm just sort of crossing my arms. Well, tell me what's going on. And it, they were very matter of fact questions. Mm -hmm. They weren't judgmental. It was just getting people out of their comfort zone. And, OK, you just you just nodded your head. It said, uh-huh, to me, what's going on with that? And to get people to be okay with who they are essentially and to not be afraid of being seen and being and being able to to say back to someone well this is where i'm coming from and to be and to stand on their own two feet and and to be rewarded for that to some extent as fritz pearls i think was trying to go for was trying to help people to not be a phony not be constantly acting for other people's sake you know just be okay. The fact that I, you know, I don't like your sweater, you know, and you know, people, what are you saying? You know, and, and he would push people in his mind, hope, hoping that they would stand up to him and mm -hmm. say like, well, screw you. I don't like, I don't like you. And he would say, good. You're, you're standing on your own two feet. You're, 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 you're having the confidence to do that. And I pushed you into a place where you had to come out swinging and, and good for you, you know, that, that you're pushing back on me. Is this your, am I describing at least a portion of Fritz Perl's uh, approach? You know, I'm not, I, I, you're drawing on, I've get, I'm drawing a blank, <laughs> but I feel like I remember this. And in the way Minutia did the same thing, of yeah. like giving people these impossible assignments. Right. Um, 
But it's making me think about also the type of therapist that would put someone in a space like that over yeah. and over again, and how that's not very gratifying work for my clients to feel uncomfortable. Um, I would say the fun part of my work is when people realize the good parts of themselves or yeah. um, so the so I'm just trying to think about the psychology of someone that would want to see somebody suffer over and over again. And where is their joy coming in the work with that? Right. Uh, to me, when I see Fritz Perl's work and when I hear him talk, uh, there's a chance that he had a sadistic streak in him or some kind of passive rage that he was displacing onto his clients. He might even agree with that if you were mm -hmm. alive today. Be like, yeah, I, ha I have a lot of abuse from my past. I have a lot of rage. Back in the 60s when he was prominent, that wasn't necessarily a, a an emphasis on the therapist admitting to such things. Maybe today he would have been okay with it. I don't know. But this guy that you're describing, anonymous patron, especially when you match it up with the the massive red flag, you know, um, have you ever been to Mexico city? Yes. I you know that there. giant Mexico flag in that main square. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's as big as the red flag of this fella <laughs> who in the midst of talking about how he likes to make people uncomfortable and he considers that to be extremely therapeutic and refuting kindness and compassion. Cause it'll be one thing if he's like, yeah, absolutely. Kindness and compassion. I do that as well. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he was pushing back against that and then out of nowhere, and, you know, she went into more detail in the longer email about how there was, you know, there wasn't any flirting. Right. It wasn't appropriate. He probably doesn't need any flirting. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like they were at a, like a meat market bar or something, you know. Right. They're meditating in a field. Yeah. And a they stranger were, approaches yeah. them, interrupts them, and then asks them for sex. Right. And not only sex, but a threesome, mm -hmm. which is like particular right mm -hmm. uh, uh so what kind of person you know, we have to assume that this is not the first time right this he's is done a something. Hab habitual pattern i'm yeah. sure and the way he introduces himself is very interesting yeah like i'm so smart i make people feel pain and right. very uncomfortable yeah and you got to wonder what in the world this guy is doing with his so-called so clients right mm -hmm. like if if he is uh, so loose boundaried in this area. Like, I mean, he, this guy has all the red flags of a cult leader, you know, that, and you could imagine that certain people with certain histories would be attracted to him recreating abusive relationships. Sure. Or it makes me think about how, when I go to a party, I try to avoid saying what I do because then everyone tells me their problems. <laughs> yeah. So I'm definitely not going to walk up to a f someone in a field and say, and open up that conversation. But he's also doing a very interesting thing. He probably doesn't realize he's pushing people away, which probably speaks even more to his pathology. Yeah. And if I was this woman, I would call HR of where she was and report this because chances are he's doing this over and over and over again. Yeah, this is mild sexual assault. I don't I don't think it's criminal, but it is absolutely assaultive to walk up to someone and interrupt them rudely and then start to propose like there's a there's a way of in which I could see this playing out and it, it seemed to be from the account you know because she says we were both we both felt quite shaken after this encounter someone hitting on you is not supposed to make you feel shaken mm -hmm. <laughs> you know if someone is like hey 
I really like you. Could we get coffee sometime? You know, there's a way of asking, you know, you could be inappropriate. You could be annoyed. You mm-hmm. know, it's one thing like, wow, that's pretty out of the, out of nowhere. There's a difference between being annoyed and feeling like, wow, that was not appropriate to feeling shaken. And that's mm-hmm. what sadistic, psychopathic individuals will do to people. And that's the effect that I've had when I've worked with people like this is just having a regular conversation will make me feel afraid. I will feel like adrenaline pumping through my body, even though there's no overt danger to me because of there's subtle clues, nonverbal clues that you're getting from these people that will give you the clear impression like they are a predator. Right. They don't have your best interests at heart. And this reminds me when I worked at Asian Counseling and Referral Service, on Monday, there was an acupuncture clinic for student acupuncturists, and it was cheap or free. And so I got a lot of acupuncture with a lot of people right as they were learning. And some people were great, and some people were horrible. <laughs> and there was this one guy who said, you know, I don't like to just do this namby-pamby people feel better. I like to get to the root of the problem. And he gave me this treatment that was so painful that I put, I don't know what he was doing, but I asked him to stop. And then afterwards, I was so agitated and uncomfortable that like I had to go home. Like something, he released way too much toxins at once. And I remember talking to the supervisor the next week and she was like, oh, you know, they're students, they're learning. But I was thinking to myself, like, this guy should not pass. <laughs> right. You could imagine if you're a sadist, which there are a percentage of people who, for whatever reason, take tremendous pleasure and are oriented towards harming other people and witnessing that harm, that they would be attracted to being an acupuncturist or a therapist or a surgeon or a police officer. You're not going to be attracted to a job like I don't know. A gar- florist. Gardener. Yeah, I don't know why that popped into my head, but but it's it makes sense. Now, you know, so, so would there be a slightly higher prevalence of these folks? Um, I would imagine so. It's hard to know. But it's extremely rare. So the fact that, you know, you would come across someone like this is, is again, pretty rare. But anyway, um, Anonymous patron says, last September, I finally told my therapist that I have feelings of deep reverence for him. I love and feel a very strong sexual attraction for him. We have carefully held this subject within our work for almost a year and have been intentional to not let it cloud other aspects of our process. It is challenging, though, because the more time I spend with my therapist, the more I fall for him. Recently, I felt the need to find out how all of this made him feel, and he professionally and bravely shared a bit of his experience. Pretty much, he feels similarly towards me and works with his supervisor to prevent the feelings from hijacking our therapy work. It felt validating that our connection was quote-unquote real, but it's such a trip because I don't really know the guy. I only see him through the projections I've cast his way. So what am I even connecting to? I don't want to lose this connection, and... Uh, that I still very much need, as it has helped me immensely through some of my hardest times. Regarding erotic transference or love transference and countertransference, when is this beneficial in therapy? When does it become detrimental? Rebecca, what do you think? Hey. Um, so that it's both ways. That's very interesting. Mm. 
Um, well, I can see why there was a connection in therapy because of that. Um, you know, I mean, they're both probably projecting onto a fantasy. I mean, you see somebody once a week for an hour and it's intimate, but it's not how they eat food or what their parents are like or... Or even how they have conversations. I mean, yeah. when you talk with your wife, do you talk <laughs> the same way as you do with your clients? Only in emergencies. <laughs> <laughs> emergencies with your wife? Yeah. Yeah. You enter into a therapist mode with your... Does she yell at you? Stop? No, she doesn't notice. That's oh. <laughs> I mean, this is like when things are really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I am... And I've had clients say to me, like, you mean so much to me. Your opinion means so much to me. And I'm like, oh, if you would watch me in the grocery store, you probably wouldn't think that. Uh, so, right, it's, it's, a, it's a very limited space. I mean, in the same way, so Paul Rudd was voted sexiest man alive today. or So I watched a ton of Paul Rudd videos. And I just thought, you know, he's so great. But, like, I don't know him. I don't, I can have a massive crush on him, but I don't. Right. Are we, would we really work out, Paul? I mean, email me if you think there's something there, but it's probably all just a fantasy in my head. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll say, as I always say to this, because I get a fair amount of emails about this, is it's totally normal for a client, particularly when we have relational traumas, significant ones, abandonment, lack of attunement, abuse, to have this intense feeling towards our therapists because we finally in a vast desert of neglect and abandonment, we finally find an oasis and it feels so good to have someone who doesn't exploit us and is there for us and listens to us and cares about us and doesn't insert their own life really into the equation. They're there for us a hundred percent for you know, 55 minutes straight and there's no distractions. There's no cell phones. There's no children. There's no pets. There's no TV. There's no politics. Everything is just focused on me the way that we all deserve to feel, particularly as we're young, to finally uh, arrive there after never getting it zero to five, by the way, it is overwhelming. It feels so good, and all of our neurons get pointed in that direction, including romantic and erotic, uh, you know, neurons, uh, which is uh, apparently extremely normal because it happens uh, very regularly, and it's to me a sign that therapy is working. When I have clients that will tell me things along these lines, I will say, "Oh, I mean, not that I." It has to happen with all clients that have relational traumas of significance. But when that happens, there, there are a number of different markers that I look for with people with personality disorders where I will say, oh, we've we've reached that point. And this is, you know, one of 50 markers that could happen. It's that- right. It's one way that people say, I feel positively about you. Right. I would sleep with you if I got the chance. Like, oh. well, it, well, and it, I think it's this. Right. Yeah, this is we have this. Uh, you could boil everything down in relationships to attraction and repulsion. You know, we're attracted to our loving parents. We're repulsed by the dog who wants to eat our face. You know, we're attracted to 
the teacher who makes us feel safe. We're repulsed by the dude on the highway that's giving us the finger because we don't know why. You know, it's all about moving towards and moving away. And and when you've are you've been constantly running from everyone, you know, your entire life because of terrible things, and you finally find someone, then all of your runners are running towards the <laughs> towards the therapist and and uh, you want to have all of them you not just the therapeutic relationship you want to be friends you want to be romantic partners you want to be you want you want to fully envelop when we're three years old and we want to fully envelop or or even six months old when we want to fully envelop with our parents you know we're physically touching them there's suckling happening there's sleeping together there's skin on skin and we don't think of it sexually, right? But it is sensual, it's physical, it's skin on skin. Well, when you're 35 and you want that experience because you never got it when you were young, it translates into our mind as a sexual experience, skin on skin, breathing in each other's you know, air, uh, cuddling, you know, that, that full envelopment physically. And it, it you know, gets translated consciously as, oh, I want to have sex with that person. But the way I interpret it is you want to become an infant and be held, which, of course, we all need from time to time, particularly those people who've, who've never had it, right? So, um, yeah, so that's just, you know, it's totally normal. Um, on the good side, what I'll say is that you're, def- you're talking about it between the two of you. You're, it seems like you're not being harmed, you know, you're not mentioning any kind of exploitation or the therapy isn't being, you know, derailed or something. And he's talking with a supervisor about it, which are all extremely good signs. When I hear a therapist who isn't talking mm-hmm. about it, it almost or what I hear about a problematic situation where a therapist is uh, letting it deteriorate the, the treatment or exploiting the, the client all the time. They're not talk or almost all the time. They're not talking with their supervisor about it. So those are all. Um, good, good things. But Rebecca, um, if you, or have you, but if you had these kinds of feelings for a client, would you tell the client? Probably not. Cause I don't think it would be helpful to the client. I mean, I just think in terms of how many ways I feel like clients are trying to protect me anyways, are worried about what I'm thinking. Um, and so I can't see how it would serve the clinical relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, and I agree, that's my position as well. Uh, I, I will say that it's never happened to me. Um, I, I Research shows that it's pretty common or common enough that it will happen at some point. But um, I think I just, I don't know, it just hasn't happened to me. But um the pro that people will say to saying it is that it validates the client because, mm-hmm. you know, in this, in this for, you know, for this client, right. you are attractive. Well, not only that, but it, it, you know, it could be a little crazy making to be a client and to feel like a connection is happening and to say, I feel like this isn't just a therapeutic mm-hmm. relationship. I feel like there's some kind of just you and me thing happening. And for the therapist to be feeling that and to be kind of embodying that energy and then to say nothing or to say, I don't, I'm not feeling those feelings or something could really drive the client a little batty of just mm-hmm. like, well, geez, you know, cause I really do feel like something's happening for him, but 
he says it's not so i guess i'm just making that you know you could it would feel validating it was like yeah you're right there is i feel it too you know there's mm-hmm. an energy here um and you're not you know making stuff up and so it can that that's a pro um but there's a fair amount of cons which is as you say it can make the client feel sort of beholden to the therapist like they have to save the therapist like what if the client falls out of attraction with the right <laughs> Yeah. They see them at the grocery store picking their nose and they're like, ew, forget yeah. it. Yeah. Right. It could lead to a, a derailing of the therapy where you could become friends too much. Mm-hmm. Um, it can confuse the client quite a bit. And I've seen that as well because uh, a lot of people have emailed in about this over the years, which has made me aware of how often it happens and how little it gets talked about, honestly. Um, well, that, we know, I know two people, but we worked with someone that married a client. Right. Do I remember that? Do Did I know that person did marry a client? I don't know. You worked <laughs> under him for years and were probably his student. Oh, really? Interesting. You can't say the name because you don't want to out that person? Yeah. Uh, can you give me a hint? This is getting too hard. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to pause it because I need to know who this is. Well, interesting. I don't think I ever knew that. But uh, also my him. first supervisor at my job in the South Bronx married one of his clients and they just made him move departments. Yeah. Right. So can that happen and it have not negative Wait, are effects? are we recording again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, point is, is that it happens and in my, according to research and my take on everything, I would say less than a 2% of the time overall it ends up being an okay thing mm-hmm. um the vast majority of time uh, clients who hook up with their therapist experience ptsd symptoms because of that interaction it can be really traumatic for a client and it can often lead to ruining a career for no reason other than the fact that the therapist just didn't understand the yes. evidence and the their um, you know, the the reenactments that they're both replaying. Because it's not like therapists don't have their own traumas that they're playing out in the therapy office. Um, do, do, have you ever had feelings like this? I, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Um, you know, I tend not to fall for my clients. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the way that I'm wired. Right. Or, or what I want to know about somebody doesn't show up for me in the therapy room like are you a good dancer like that's very important to me are you going to make me a nice meal like the things that would build really you're a you need a dancer yes is beth a good dancer she's a, she's a nah, she's okay she's passable <laughs> um but there's a way of like what is interesting to me about connection doesn't happen in the therapy room. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's I never thought of it that way. That for me, what would facilitate that romantic attraction is not happening in therapy, which gives me another thought of if that is the venue that attracts you to someone you you should probably take a look at that you know if the action of taking care of someone mm-hmm. and being superior you know you know being in a place of control because it's your office it's your therapy sort of protocol is a a venue of romantic and sexual attraction you know you might want to might want to take a look at that 
Yeah, I mean, it's making me think of people I've had crushes on recently. And all of those activities could not. Like, if I think to someone like, ooh, I want to go thrift store shopping with that person. <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's like foreplay to me. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very different. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, people I knew who were very attracted you know, but some, I mean, obviously, with my first supervisor, some kind of connection happened with this woman. He didn't sleep with all of his clients, but he ended up having a long-term relationship and two kids with this woman. Um, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, having said all that, that Rebecca and I are apparently not oriented that way. It's extremely common to have a crush on your client at some point. You know, have a crush on at least one client in the span of your career. I will say that I have artistic crushes on some of my clients. Mm. Some of my clients are producing amazing stuff. Mm. And honestly, I do follow them on social media. And I have, for my the one client in particular, we have conversations about that. Um, but, yeah, it's not. And, like, so what would happen if I suddenly didn't like her work and I never brought it up again? I mean, that's kind of the whole new world of social media. Yeah. So you ask, you know, when is it beneficial? Well, it can be a very corrective experience in that it validates how you feel. It can be, it can feel very close uh, in a way that a regular therapeutic relationship might not be as close. It can make you feel like, oh, even though this person has needs towards me, they don't exploit me. Like mm-hmm. they, they're, they think about how their needs fit into how you know harm or benefiting me and they are overriding their impulses because they care about me and that can be extremely therapeutic you know you can imagine that's emulative of when you're five and you have a parent who wants to have sex with you and does have sex with you that you could have a relationship with a therapist who expresses at least some attraction towards you, but, you know, restrains themselves because they care about you. You could imagine that that could be a very corrective experience. You could also imagine it, you know, being detrimental because it could, if, if it's interpreted or done in a certain way, the client could interpret it as that's all I am. Mm -hmm. I'm just an object of sex. I'm just an object of someone else's needs. And, um, even my therapist is doing things to me in their mind. You know, you could imagine that uh, being detrimental. And so, you know, I what I tell my supervisees when they're in these kinds of situations is to just be very careful and only disclose it to your clients if you're 99% sure that it's not going to cause harm, which is hard to know. Um, and uh, because what I see is that there's a kind of a dogma in a certain section of our field where you always tell your client, like you Mm -hmm. just, you just boom, you know, just, just admit it, you know, just get it out on the table. And uh, if done right, I think it can, and it seems to be, you know, working well with this client, but I've seen a lot of situations where the therapist does not know how to talk about it from, because they're entering they're they're placing their own sexual and romantic attraction in the room 
and they're self-disclosing something extremely right. personal. How, how do you back out of that too? Or right. like, how do how? I mean, I just wonder, like, how often does that get talked about? Yeah. Is that really the most important issue? Yeah. In this client's life, do they? Are they avoiding romantic connections outside their relationship? Like, I have right. one client who gets in these dating scenarios that are impossible and then has lots of big feelings about that. And we joke about that. Like, well, when you choose to date someone who's 3,000 miles away, these problems come up. Yeah. Um, and so it's much more useful to have that be happening in the real world as opposed to in the therapeutic session. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, it, can it be done? Yeah, but it, it it has to be very skillfully and carefully uh, done. And when in doubt, I recommend therapists just, you know, there's and, and there's also a way of discussing it, right? You could say something like that could facilitate the non-crazy making aspect, which is, let's say like on a scale from one to 10, you're like a seven attracted to your client. And you're processing it with your therapist and your supervisor and, you know, and you might actually be kind of suffering quite a bit. It's just like, I've been lonely lately. If I had met this person outside of therapy, I'm, I'm quite sure I, I would have dated this person. And I, I wonder, I, sometimes I wonder if things could have worked out with this person and, you know, they, they fit all the things that, you know, and I, and I, I think about this person at night and, you know, and, you know, you're, you're, you're doing the thing. And then you sit down in front of the client and, and you say, you know, the, the client says, oh, I'm attracted to you. And, you know, do you what do you do you feel it, too? And as a, as a therapist, you could say something along the lines of of, yeah, there there's there's an energy there uh, that I feel, um, you know, uh, tell me more about it. You know, it, you just you acknowledge it. You just but you're not like. I want you, <laughs> you right. know, you're right. just acknowledging like, yeah, you know, I can feel some kind of thing there, but you're not inserting your own kind of desires into that equation. Or to say some way less clinical, boring version of you're a really attractive person. You deserve a really fulfilling relationship. What do you want from a partner? Yeah. Um, or I could see how someone would really like you. You know, mm -hmm. I, I could see that, um, uh, I could see how someone would really be attracted to you uh, and see the, the goodness in you or the attractive qualities of you. Uh, yeah, something along those lines. Um, but again, even that one would have to be carefully done, of course, because exploitation and bad yeah. feelings could occur in the client. And I just wonder, is this the most important thing? To, right. What's being avoided with for this to be focused on? Sure, absolutely, yeah. And I had this actually happened recently someone we tested out a supervisee relationship and it did not work and wait start over what okay uh someone approached me and said they'd like to receive supervision okay. from me i didn't know this person at all so i said let's try it out and on the second in our second meeting i felt like i had no choice but to say you're colluding with your client and avoiding the issue at hand because they showed me a video and I could see it in the video. Yeah. Um, and they ended the relationship soon after that session. But so I wonder by spending so much time on sexual transference, what what's getting avoided? Right. And that is a perspective that I think is worthy that I think is 
sometimes not emphasized, which is that the client and the therapist colluding with might actually be focusing on this subconsciously and consciously to avoid the material that needs to be approached. Sometimes it is the the real closeness, you know, to to yeah, for someone who's been relationally traumatized to approach a therapist and to to feel vulnerable and to feel connection. It can be a defense to frame it as a romantic one because one, it categorizes it in this more, I don't know, salacious way, but it also will challenge the therapist a little bit and might push the therapist away in some way. You know, on average, if you say this to a therapist, I don't know on average, but I imagine a lot of therapists would be like, whoa, uh, this is inappropriate. Yeah, you got to back off. Uh, boundaries, maybe the, I'm not the best therapist for you, which is which is equally stupid um, to exploiting a, th- a client, really. Well, maybe not equally, but also stupid. And because uh, it happens and it's been documented for over 100 years that this happens with clients, it's fine. <laughs> you don't have to freak. Uh, and... Uh, it is a it's a test, so to speak, of can you, as my therapist who has entered into caretaking of me, handle me inviting an exploitation, maybe even being a little flirtatious with you? Can you withstand that and still be a trusted caretaker, or mm-hmm. are you going to exploit me like everyone else has? You know, so I think that to give into that. And to, and to discuss it a lot might be colluding with that defense. Or also, is this is as good as it gets in my life that for one hour a week, I can find someone who I can truly be honest with, where I would say, okay, take this energy and look for it outside of here. Right. Like, this is not the height. <laughs> this is not where you need to have your greatest intimacy over time, my hope is that you'll take what we, the skills that we build in here and do them on the outside. That's where it really counts. Right, right. All right, let's take a break and we we'll come back uh, a couple more emails. What do you say? Yes. All right, we're back from the break. So long-term patron Jessica from Vegas sent me a TikTok video of, oh. a, of a life coach saying, uh, and wasn't bad. I was preparing for it to be a little cringy, but it, it was it was fine. But the one is of the, the life coach from Vegas. Like, are they Vegasy? Are they oh, glittery? No, I, oh. I doubt it. Just TikTok person, mm. American seeming, North American, talking about how eighty uh, percent of divorces are initiated by women. I looked it up, and it's more like seventy percent. But the majority of divorces in heterosexual relationships are uh, initiated by women, and then the TikTok life coach person went on to speculate as to why and you know and and a lot of it seemed you know like possible speculations but the questions from long-term patron jessica from vegas says why does this pattern occur that women are more likely in heterosexual relationships Ooh, to, i know i know i know it's a few before you answer i'll read the rest <laughs> Wait, of the i know i know the answer women may say it's because men are lazy emotionally immature entitled oblivious Etc. Well, that's not the answer that I don't know. <laughs> uh, men may say women are needy, too sensitive, entitled, ungrateful. What is your hypothesis, Rebecca? Well, so I am at, I'm 50. So many of the women in my life have, who have chosen to have children with their heterosexual partners 
I've gotten to the point now where the children can take care of themselves and they take a good long look at their partner and they're unhappy. So there's there's probably one or two divorces in my circle a year. And what it often comes down to, if the men initiate it, it's because of an affair. This is just Seattle hearsay. I would love to know the actual research. Um, and if the women initiate it, it's because they have to do too much, too much of the labor at home, too much of the emotional labor. The guy needs to do too many of his hobbies and just can't be around for the kids. And they take a look at their marriage and realize if I did this half time or three quarters time by myself and had half time or a quarter time to do what I want to do. I would be happier. Right. Yeah, that's it's hard to know. This is a, a an important question. Why does this stat cuz uh, when you ask people going through or having gone through divorce like who initiated it, you know, you just it's a pretty easy question to answer and a, a lot of, you know, the research indicates that the majority, you know, and for college educated people it's it's something like 90% mm-hmm. uh that are initiated by women. And so uh, you have to wonder, like, how, why does that play out exactly? Uh, the privilege that educated women have. I'm sure it's the money. Those women probably have the access. Right. 20% more access to live on their own. Right, exactly. So the um, hypothesis is, you know, that I have, which is hard to test, is what you're saying, which is that when... It's, so often... I, it bothers me when they talk about, you know, conflict in marriages are always about money or kids or this sort of thing. And those are the topics being discussed, but they're not, it's not in my mind the reason why people are fighting. It's because there's a, a lack of connection and a toxic way of discussing these things. You know, all couples will conflict about parenting, all couples will conflict about money. But why do only some couples break up or deteriorate? Because it's because of a lack of awareness and a lack of ability to communicate about such things. Well, and I'll say this recent divorce or separation announcement hit me particularly hard. I think because I saw this as a couple that had got that are really together. They had also done the famous thing, which is they made it through the remodel. And then the remodel was done, and you thought, oh, now they have this house that they can live in, and now they get divorced, which is the terror of all couples. That happens frequently. Yeah. And we're about to go into a remodel, and so (laughs) brought up a lot of my own angst. But So I was talking about it around the kitchen. We do roses and thorns three times a week at my house, discuss one good thing and one bad thing, and I brought up this divorce, and my... A lovely large human teen said, well, relationships are about compromise. (laughs) And if this couple is getting divorced, they can't compromise anymore. And I thought that's so interesting that that's what he has heard from us. Yeah. That's his takeaway. But why would some couples compromise in the beginning um, and not uh, during the breakup? It's in my estimation, as a couples therapist that have you know worked with a lot of couples fighting about you know so many different things. You know, there's some common things. It's 
at its core, it's because of attachment reactivity that is not understood by the individuals and triggering each other, each other's attachment reactivity. And the topic that's being discussed is, is not important uh, in, in my experience. Um, sometimes they are important-ish, like how do we parent our kids? Where do we live? And, you know, okay. But why do some couples get through that, even though there are these massive incompatibilities, so to speak? You know, it's because they they listen to each other and they take care of each other and they talk from an eye position and they don't trigger the other person. And, you know, it's not without its problems, but they get through it. So when uh, couples go through that, heterosexual couples we're focusing on here, they uh, and they start to split up. They start to, uh, you know, have affairs or they start to spend less time together or they their bond starts to deteriorate. Uh, because of sexism, men end up winning because of expectations and entitlement. Men will spend more time with friends. They will have affairs. They will spend more time. They'll do more things for themselves. They're like, well, my wife and home is no longer meeting my needs, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do my own thing. Whereas women get, you know, the short end of the stick, where they have to take care of all the kids. They have to clean the house. They have to work full time. They have to uh, worry about other people. And so women as, so to me, the, the common path is because of attachment reactivity and triggering the relationship deteriorates. And because of sexism, the woman gets screwed in that process much more often than men do. Whereas if you had, you know, if sexism didn't exist, like, uh, or there's equal sexism as in a lesbian relationship. There's an equal, there's sort of a, a balance on average when you're talking about gender and you're looking at a lot, a lot of people that, e- you know, each person feels equally beholden to the house and to the children and to their responsibilities so that when they start to do other things, one person isn't getting screwed relative to the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think of it in terms of, is this partnership still serving me? Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing that we talked about over the dinner table is that really a partnership, <laughs> you have to decide if, if this partnership is still worth your time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some people step out of that agreement. Right. Other commonly speculated factors are that because of sexism and entitlement and socialization, women are far more abused in heterosexual relationships than men are. And so that's going to raise the divorce statistic there as well. Um, also, uh, throughout the marriage, women are being screwed often, more often than, than, you know, regarding doing the chores and take care of the kids and all that kind of stuff. Well, and it's the rise of the feminist movement that, I mean, I think it was in the 70s that the divorce rate got to 50% because more women could find ways out. Right. I mean, that's why it rose. And it's actually interesting. It's also correlated with the rise of serial killers against women, that more women could say no, less men could find partnerships, people that would stay with them. And servants is another word for it, (laughs) you know, um, uh, and, uh, along those lines, men are socialized to seek the partner that they want, 
whereas women are generally socialized to seek, particularly heterosexual women, girls, are socialized to accept the man who approaches them. You know, it's it's in all the movies, all, uh, not so much recently, but, you know, up until recently and still to some extent recently, uh, all the rom-coms, it's the guy like approaching the woman and the woman is just sort of like she was just sitting there and 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 it's and if everything if he does everything right then she accepts his Mm -hmm. proposal of relationship and how often in rom-coms was there just a cute guy walking down the street um and the woman is just like "Ooh, i'm gonna go get that guy and the guy is like reacting to her and then eventually like succumbs and says like okay i guess i'll date you and then they ride off into the sunset so you have, uh, in general, a lot of, certainly there are women who weren't socialized that way or don't think that way, and men who are socialized in that uh, harmful way. But on in general, so you have this whole slew of heterosexual relationships who are in their 30s, and women, maybe with therapy or growing up, finally ask themselves, do I want to be in this relationship? Mm-hmm. And they answer the question, no. I, I never, whereas the man, he did choose her. On all, He did say, yes, she's the one for me. I, do I want her? Yes, I want her. And the woman was just like, okay, I'll go along with it because that's what I've been told to do. I, I, I've been told right, I don't. I got I don't picked. Ha- I mean, that's the whole thing about this whole culture about engagement announcements and you know, how women are viewed in the wedding of like, you know, you got a man. Uh, you're so lucky. Right. That's it's pretty gross. I've been watching. I've, got, I've gotten sucked into the Paris Hilton. Uh, she's getting she's finally getting married. Oh, is she? And it's kind of fascinating to see like the, you know, who could tame Paris? Um, and I'm like, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, especially, isn't she in her 40s by this yeah. point? It's like she's not 22. I know, they're still talking about her like she's this young, young and she's partying, party girl. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. right. So it's all over the place in our culture, particularly tabloid media. Um, the other factor is that uh, men are told to avoid their feelings, and... Uh, maybe even told to avoid evaluating marriage altogether. And so once you kind of get locked in as a man, and the other thing I think is men are socialized for, um, I don't know how to put this without making it sound funny, but for, for loyalty in a way, for dedication to, you know, it's it's this, and it's definitely falling out of favor because of, corporate America firing people at will all the time. But uh, there was a message given to me by my dad that to be a real man, it wasn't explicit. You, once you dedicate yourself, you commit yourself to something like you have to stick through it. Mm. Like there's, you don't question, especially Japanese American. Mm -hmm. You do not question because to question is to be weak is Mm -hmm. to, not have a craft it's almost like a craft you know (laughs) like you you get into a job and if you dedicate yourself to the you know to the organization everyone wins and you know like my dad had he worked at boeing i i I think kind of unquestioningly for Mm -hmm. almost 50 years and there was this huge 
uh, elevation of that kind of loyalty. Right, and commitment. And I think that some men are socialized to, I think, pros and cons to once you make that commitment, you hold to it and you, um, you know, I don't know, just hold to it, you know, because it's not like men are going to couples therapy to work on their relationships as often as women are. So it's like you're both. So it's your you're sort of screwed. You know, it's like be committed, but do nothing to actually address the problems that emerge in relationships, you know, and examine what it means that, you know, you I mean, what I see a lot with my male friends is they were socialized to be the providers. And especially here in Seattle, there's a good chance that their wives will be making more than they are in the tech industry. Yeah. And how that switches up the dynamics. Um, yeah, self-esteem. I'm, yeah. Right. What, what's the procedure? Uh, absolutely. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I see a lot of dudes in heterosexual relationships that are doing wonderful work, feminist work, whether they know it or not, regarding, yeah, my wife, she she's doing amazing. And I stay at home mostly, you know, and, you know, she works a lot. And I'm, you know, the primary parent and... Uh, and I, that's fine with me. You know, I, I, I'm really proud of her, you know, like she loves her job and she's highly respected and, you know, my career is kind of floundering a little bit, but, but I, you know, I feel, and I get funny comments from my relatives, but I don't, I don't care. Like uh, we're beyond that now. Like, you know, we're, we're a team, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and you know, I cook, I clean, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's rare, but, you know, I've seen it. And uh, so it's definitely happened. I think particularly younger people, um, given all the liberation of gender that we're going through more recently, I think that it furthers the, you know, freedom for people to be who they are. Yeah, and maybe they're the best person to do that in the the relationship. Like, I, I mean, I've... I have had the pleasure to know families that have had all kinds of configurations. And when the right person gets to stay home or a person that really loves that job, regardless of gender, that's great for the family and great for the kid. Mm-hmm. So as Your you can see... HVAC guy is here. Yeah. So as you can see, Rebecca, our HVAC person is coming to look at our... Uh, heating system because it um, is on the fritz. Uh-oh. Not heading into mid-November in Seattle, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we should probably go because okay. he's going to be rattling around right outside the window here. And um, so final word, Rebecca, what do you want to tell the listeners? So we're heading into the holidays. So everyone take care of yourself. And if it doesn't bring you joy and it's some weird family tradition, you don't have to do it. Because you deserve it, wait. And take care of yourself. Why, Rebecca? Because <laughs> uh, the holidays are really hard. And if, if you can make it through this time of year, do what you got to do.